Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. And the dean looks at me and says, uh, so you're the fellow who wants to teach a course on funny books at my university? I don't buy this. He goes, I'm sorry. He goes, I read comic books when I was a kid. I read every issue of Superman I could get my hands on. But all comic books are, are cheap entertainment for children. Nothing more, nothing less. Don't talk to me about art, mythology, folklore. This becomes now a turning point in my entire life. Because I could have bowed my head at that moment, picked up my funny books, and turned around and walked out of the room. But instead, figuring I had nothing to lose, I stood my ground. And I said, may I ask you two questions, Dean? He said, go ahead. I said, are you familiar with the story of Moses? He says, yeah, why? I said, very briefly, could you just recite for me the story of Moses? And he folded his arms and sat back and he goes, Mr. Uslan, I don't know what game you're playing here, but I have no problem playing this with you. He said the Hebrew people were being persecuted. Their firstborn were being slain. The Hebrew couple placed their infant son in a little wicker basket and sent him down the River Nile. There he's discovered by an Egyptian family who raised him as their own son. When he grows up and learns of his true heritage, he becomes a hero to his people by, I said, stop, that's great. I said, you said you read Superman comics when you were a kid. Are you familiar with the origin of Superman? He goes, sure, the planet Krypton was about to blow up. Scientist and his wife place their infant son in a little rocket ship and send him to Earth. There he's discovered by the Kents. And with that, he stops, stares at me for what I swear was an eternity and says, your course is accredited. I am now the first college professor of comic books. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard. Hope you're doing well. For those of you who listen to the show, thanks for coming back. And for those newbies, thanks for checking us out and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. I want to thank everybody for all your support. I can't even begin to tell you how great it is to get all the letters and emails and texts and tweets and direct messages on Facebook and all over the place. You guys are so supportive and I really, really appreciate it. If you want to reach me, you can do so at Barry Katz at Instagram or Twitter or barrycats.com. 
If you want to see the show live and you're in the Boston area, we're doing the Boston Comedy Festival the first week of September. And I will be there and you can get tickets. Easy to find. And if you're in Montreal this summer, I'm at the Montreal Just for Last Festival, July 27th at 1.30 in the afternoon. The Hyatt Regency with an incredible guest who I just confirmed today, but I am not going to jinx it. Very excited about it. And it's sure to be one of the best podcasts <laughs> I've ever done. Very excited. And without further ado, as I always do, always look at my guest and figure out something to impart to you guys that has to do with this crazy business life and this podcast. And as I look at Michael Uslan, I see a guy who has really, really taken things to a level that I cannot really quantify or believe truly when I think of somebody as a young child and you hear of those stories of people who knew what they wanted or were inspired by what they wanted to do early on and they figured out a way to get it. This is a guy who is buying comic books for a dime and had a dream of writing for the Batman comics and found himself doing so later on in his life. And not only that, figure out a way to get the rights to the Batman movie franchise and wrote it to a 30-year career of Batman. And when I look at my children, I see the things that they want to do and how excited and passionate they are about the things that they're looking forward to in their lives. It, it really tied in when I listened to Michael Uslan because he was a guy that just figured out the dream. He went forward, didn't matter what the obstacles were. He was going to figure out how to get there and be in a position to take things to the next level. And there were some ups and downs along the way. There were a lot of downs. There are many, many years where nothing happened. But when things finally got going, forget it. He was on his way, and he was a part of one of the greatest franchises in movie history. His story and everything around it is what the American dream and the worldwide dream is made of. Find out what you're passionate about. Go for it 100%. Show up. Do the work. Take risks and blow people the fuck away and you can have it all. And if you figure out a way to do all those things, I can guarantee you, you'll have the chance at the kind of career that Michael Uslan has. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now? Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Why is it so many kids' properties 
like every Disney movie from Bambi into The Lion King, a parent is killed in the beginning of the movie. But in real life, if your parent was killed when you were a kid, it would be the most tragic, devastating thing in the world. Why do you think that's the formula for success in so many things? Well, first of all, you should know that I am still in therapy from both Bambi and seeing a movie called Old Yeller. Old Yeller was the greatest dog in the world to this like pioneer family, except he gets bitten. He gets the rabies at the end. He starts to foam and growl. And at the end of the movie, and I'm like eight when I'm watching this at somebody's birthday party, they take him out back and shoot him between the eyes. This goes back, as far as I know, into the world of traditional folk tales and what we call fairy tales. If you go back to the origin of most fairy tales, they are horrific. They are horrific. They all involve people dying horribly. Grandmas being eaten by wolves, wolves' stomachs being cut open, um, kids being placed in an oven. Fairy tales, absolutely horrific. And I think that a lot of these movies, a lot of the storytelling is descended from that tradition. And I think just like back in the early 1900s, when people said, you know, it's no more mores have changed. It's no longer acceptable to show the dog and the gramophone on a coffin. Let's black that out. I think these days it's it's kind of more like that. Tell our audience how you went from 13 years old meeting the uh, Batman creator to about 10 years later being the guy who somehow, some way, got the rights to the feature film world of Batman. So Bill Finger says, um, let's not have him live in New York or Metropolis. Um, he said, there's a jeweler in Yonkers I always go to, Gotham Jewelers. He says, let's call it Gotham City. And let's give him a car to drive around in. And then later he says, well, let's call it something. Let's call it the Batmobile. So as I say to everybody, whenever I lecture on this, I said, so who is the creator or who are the creators of Batman? Is it Bob Kane? Is it Bill Finger? Is it Bob Kane and Bill Finger? You decide. I can give you the facts and then you can decide. But why wasn't Bill Finger's name on the comic book? Lawyers. Bob Kane was 17 at the time. He had a dad who was on top of the situation. His dad had a relative or friend who was a lawyer. And he made sure that when he went into DC Comics, that contract um, specified not only the payments to Bob, they didn't even... DC didn't even know about Bill Finger. They didn't even know he existed. Bob went in alone with his dad and the lawyer, and part of the deal was that he would get sole credit. Bill was largely in a world on his own, and he was a creative guy. And if you know a lot of strictly creative people, often they are not business people. They don't think about it. And the comic book industry is renowned, unfortunately for having taken advantage of virtually every writer and artist. You're street. saying that Bill Finger, out of 100% of the money that Bob Kane made, you're saying that Bill Finger made zero. Bill Finger died an alcoholic in 1974 and was buried in a pauper's grave in New York. Why wouldn't Bob Kane, after all the money made, just send... A little bit of money each year to the guy that didn't even amount to anything to him but just to keep him in a good style of living or give him credit 
There are many different people in the world. Was Bob Kane ever interviewed and asked that yes, question? Yes, and he threatened to sue the, the comic book fanzine called Batmania um, that was telling the Bill Finger story and revealing to fans for the first time the extent of Bill Finger's involvement in the, for, for real in the creation of Batman, which was against the mythology that had been presented for many years. When I interviewed Phil Rosenthal, when he was a young kid in college, he created with two other people Tony and Tina's wedding, mm -hmm. which became huge. And they cut him out of it as they started moving forward. But he was a young kid. He didn't know what to do, and they were more powerful than he was. And I imagine he could have lost his way and become an alcoholic and died penniless. But that inspired him to go further and go to another level and create something bigger and better, which ended up being Everybody Loves Raymond. This guy didn't have that personality. He didn't have the personality or the support system. He happens to also be the co-creator of Green Lantern, the co-creator of Wildcat. Did he get his name on those? He got his name on those. Then why did he die penniless? Because he got his name on those. And every time he wrote a script, he got a check which had stamped on the back, by endorsing this check, you are surrendering all rights in perpetuity to blah, 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 which was standard practice in the comic book industry, which is why you can count prior to the modern era now of Frank Miller and everyone like that, um, prior to this era, you could count on one hand the comic book creators who made out well. Everybody else got screwed. So wrapping up this first Comic-Con story, we just go to Saturday night. There were 200 people at this Comic-Con. And to the best of my recollection, it was 197 boys and three girls. And the guys who were putting it on had a dilemma. What do you do on Saturday night with 197 guys and three girls? Those three girls must have been the most popular girls in the place. One of them still goes to every Comic-Con. She hasn't missed one year. Like, I have not missed one year. I'm coming up on year 54, I think. Uh, Maggie Thompson, she is one of the most respected historians, publishers, um, journalists uh, in the history of comics. And um, amazing, amazing woman. How old was she then? She was older than me. I was 13. She was married. She was married by then. So, um, yeah, I mean, so what they decided to do for Saturday night was to tell everybody to come dressed up as their favorite superhero and they'd have a parade and give out prizes. That was the night cosplay was born. And I was there in a costume my mom helped me make, which was a picture of which was taken by a magazine at the time and published in a magazine and I reprinted it in my book, The Boy Who Loved Batman. What was your costume? The original 1940 Sandman from DC Comics in the gas mask. Now, was there a situation where everybody showed up and like in a party, the girl goes and she gets the nice dress and she shows up and there's another girl wearing the same dress? Was anybody else? There were three shadows. Bobby Klein was one of them, my friend Bobby. So, um... A lot of times I've been called the Zelig or the Forrest Gump of the comic book and movie world. Um, I have, for one reason or another, been at all these important turning events uh, along the history and have rubbed elbows 
with some of the most interesting people. And I call it rubbing elbows with history. Um, it's been fun. It's been really, really interesting. Like I said, I never throw anything out. So what do you do when you want to have a future in comics? I think starting at eight years old, all I wanted to do was write Batman comics someday because he was a superhero I identified with the most because he had no superpowers. That was primarily it. I really believed in my heart of hearts at that moment in time that if I studied hard and worked out real hard and if my dad bought me a cool car, I could be this guy. And he also had the greatest supervillains in the world. He had the car. Uh, the guy had everything. But my first opportunity to do something about that didn't happen until college. And it was my junior year of college, Indiana University, Bloomington, Indiana. And this was the early 1970s, as we like to say, a time of great experimentation on college campuses. So there's a story I tell, which was that in response to the times, Indiana University started an experimental curriculum program. And they said, if you have an idea for a course in college that has never been taught before, and if you can get the backing of one of the departments on campus, you then can come in and pitch it to the dean and a panel of professors, and if they agreed with it, you could teach it on campus for up to three hours of credit. So I said, I'm going to try to teach the world's first ever accredited college course on comic books. And why not? Comic books are a legitimate American art form. They're as indigenous to this country as jazz. Number two, folklore. It is the modern day folklore. My theory was the ancient gods of Greece, Rome, and Egypt all still exist today, except they wear spandex and capes. So my point to the head of the folklore department when I pitched this was the Greeks called them Hermes, the Romans called them Mercury, I call them the Flash. The Greeks called them Poseidon, the Romans called them Neptune, I call them Aquaman. And he, he said, I will back you. You're right. These are the same stories, the same plots, motifs, the same conventional stock characters. And so the day came. Um, my hair is down on my shoulders. I'm wearing my hippie love beads. I've got my Spider-Man t-shirt on. I got a pile of Superman comics underneath my arm. And I go walking into this room, which was dark mahogany room. It looked like the Justice League secret sanctum with a big um, table in the center, professors around the side, the dean at the end. And the dean looks at me and says, uh, so you're the fellow who wants to teach a course on funny books at my university? And um, I knew this was going to be problematic. So I began my pitch. He let me speak for two minutes and then said, Mr. Uslan, stop. He goes, I don't buy this. He goes, I'm sorry. He goes, I read comic books when I was a kid. I read every issue of Superman I could get my hands on, but all comic books are, are cheap entertainment for children. Nothing more, nothing less. Don't talk to me about art, mythology, folklore. This becomes now a turning point in my entire life because I could have bowed my head at that moment, picked up my funny books, and turned around and walked out of the room. But instead, figuring I had nothing to lose, I stood my ground. I said, may I ask you two questions, Dean? He said, go ahead. I said, are you familiar with the story of Moses? He says, yeah, why? I said, very briefly, could you just recite for me the story of Moses? And he folded his arms and sat back and he goes, Mr. Uslan, I don't know what game you're playing here, but I have no problem playing this with you. He said, the Hebrew people were being persecuted. 
their firstborn were being slain. The Hebrew couple placed their infant son in a little wicker basket and sent him down the River Nile. There he's discovered by an Egyptian family who raised him as their own son. When he grows up and learns of his true heritage, he becomes a hero to his people by, I said, stop, that's great. I said, you said you read Superman comics when you were a kid. Are you familiar with the origin of Superman? He goes, sure, the planet Krypton was about to blow up. Scientist and his wife place their infant son in a little rocket ship and send him to Earth. There he's discovered by the Kents. And with that, he stops, stares at me for what I swear was an eternity and says, your course is accredited. I am now the first college professor of comic books. Fantastic. Did you improvise that? Totally off the top of my head. Was my that head. the first time you ever questioned authority? No. No. Uh, I grew up in an era where student rebellion was rampant. Uh, I, I was very politically active starting in high school. I created a stir at my high school leading a um, charge against the dress code, and we successfully tore down the dress code. I was out in the streets in high school and college protesting for against the Vietnam War for the 18-year-old vote uh, against Nixon, um, pro-women's rights, for civil rights, pro-environment, this new thing called Earth Day and this new word called ecology. And we made a difference. We really, truly made a difference. So no, I was, I was used to defying authority and being subversive. Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Hey everybody, I want to tell you about a great product called Boku Superfoods. I just got back from Ojai and met with the owners of the company and I was just incredibly blown away by it. They have the purest, most potent and delicious superfood blends on the planet. It's just in these incredible powders where you just add any liquid you want, water, make smoothies. It's just so good and so healthy. Certified organic, kosher, and vegan, Boku Superfood is changing the game for thousands of people all over the world, and I'm confident it'll change your life. So much so that I worked out an unbelievable deal with the owners. You'll be able to get a full week's worth of Boku Superfood for free. All you gotta do is pay minimal shipping, and you can join the Boku Love Life loyalty team. 
Just go to tryboku.com and experience the difference of how it makes you look and feel. And you will understand why Boku is the number one family-owned superfood company in the world. So how do you get from the accredited class to be in a position where you get the rights to the feature film Batman franchises? First, we got to thank my mom. Because as I'm walking back to my apartment that day, I could hear my mom in my head. Michael, you could have the greatest creative ideas in the world, but if you don't market them, if you don't market yourself, nobody will ever know about it. And I thought about that. I'm at my apartment in the oasis in the desert, Bloomington, and I'm 19, 20 years old. So I picked up a phone, again, figuring I have nothing to lose. I called United Press International which at that time was as big a news syndicate as Associated Press is today. I asked to speak to a reporter who deals with education. This guy gets on the phone and I started to scream at him. I said, what's wrong with you? You're not doing your job. You're supposed to be the watchdog of society. You're not doing your job. He goes, calm down. He says, what are you talking about? I said, what am I talking about? I said, I just heard that there is a course on comic books being taught at Indiana University. Are you telling me as a taxpayer in this state, that they're using my money to teach our kids comic books? I said, this is outrageous. This must be some communist plot to subvert the youth of America. And I slammed down the phone. Took this guy three days to find out if they really did have a course and who was teaching it. And he came down and interviewed me. That interview went out. It was a third of a page long with photographs. And it was picked up by virtually every newspaper in North America and a bunch in Europe. My phone started to ring off the hook. I'm invited on radio talk shows. I'm invited on TV talk shows. I never taught one specific class that wasn't filled with TV cameras and reporters. I had the NBC Nightly News, CBS Evening News. Um, I talk about the night I had four reporters in the front row. It was Parade Magazine, Family Weekly Magazine, Playboy, and Penthouse. I mean, it was just appealing to everybody. I Actually, the guy who wrote up my whole um, course about my class for Penthouse was Denny O'Neill, who was freelancing at the time, who, would, who was my favorite 1970s comic book writer and, and was at DC. It was, it was wild. So um, a couple of weeks go by, my phone rings, and it's this exuberant male voice. Hi, is this Mike Uslin? Yeah. Hiya, Mike. This is Stan Lee from Marvel Comics in New York City. And I call this my burning bush moment because I was talking to my God. And he says, Mike, I'm seeing you on TV. Every time I pick up a newspaper, I'm reading about you. What you're doing is great for the whole comic book industry. How can I help you? That began my relationship as an adult. I had met Stan when I was 11. My relationship as an adult with Stan, he would become a mentor, a friend, a creative collaborator, um, amazing influence in my life. Two hours later, the phone rings again. It's a dour male voice. Mr. Uslan, my name is Saul Harrison. I'm vice president of DC Comics in New York City. We publish Superman and Wonder Woman. I go, yeah, I'm Batman, I know. He goes, we have been listening to you on the radio and reading about you in magazines. He says, you're a very bright, innovative young man. We would like to fly you to New York City and discuss ways we might be able to work together. This is geek 
dream come true. He flew me and my girlfriend out to uh, New York, and I wind up getting a job at DC Comics where they are going to have me work there in the summers since my parents' house was just an hour south of New York City, and they were going to put me on retainer when I went back to Indiana. So that was the big jump. That was a leap across the Grand Canyon for me. And you're how old? 20. So I'm working at DC, and this one day, it's almost 6 o'clock at night, I start to hear screaming from down the hall. I thought someone was being murdered. I went running down there. It was Denny O'Neill. Denny was the editor at that point. Of course, he was a writer of many things, but he was the editor of a group of magazines, including The Shadow. And I go, are you okay, Denny? He goes, no, I am not okay. He goes, I just got this memo. He goes, I need a shadow. There's a shadow script due tomorrow. He goes, I don't have a shadow script. I don't have a shadow story. I don't even have an idea for a shadow story. I raised my hand. I said, I have an idea for a shadow story. He said, you do? I didn't. But I saw that door just opened a crack and figured, let me shove my foot in it. He says, all right, come in, come in, sit down. What's your idea for a shadow story? Man, <laughs> my head's spinning. My wife and I, at that time, my girlfriend and I, we had just gotten back from a trip to Niagara Falls. And I said, you know, Denny, uh, the shadow stories were all set in the 30s and 40s. Back then at Niagara Falls, they had people going over the falls in barrels and walking across the falls on a tightrope. I said, my story would be the shadow battling a bad guy on a tightrope over Niagara Falls at night with the searchlights going. And he says, well, Michael, that is a great cover idea. But what's the story about? I said, oh, well, I was just coming to that. The story is about smuggling. And he says, well, what are they smuggling? I, they are smuggling drugs. And he says, well, what's unusual about it? What's the catch? What's the creative thing to it? I said, well... Danny, I've been saving this for the last because it's the best part and the wheels are turning, the wheels are turning. Uh, well, you know, they were going over the falls in barrels. So over on the Canadian side, they're loading the barrels, false bottoms in the barrels, they're loading it with drugs. And they're going over the falls and they're washing up on the American side and that's how they're getting all the drugs through. He says, that's different. That's unique, that's creative. He says, could you have an entire script on my desk by six o'clock tomorrow night? I said, that's not a problem. He says, go do it. I wrote on the subway going back to Penn Station. I wrote on the train going back to Asbury Park. I wrote, I pulled an all-nighter, wrote on the train coming back, and I turned in the script. And the script was by hand? Uh, by hand. And then when I got to D.C., I went up to one of the secretaries and made a deal, the terms of which I cannot even disclose today, in which I would feed her pages all during the day and she would type it up for me. So it cost me a fortune in certain comic books that I never wanted to part with. Uh, but she working at DC knew where the stashes were. So um, ultimately, I hand in the script. Few weeks later, I'm walking down the hall and who's walking toward me but Julie Schwartz, arguably the most important editor in the history of comics. Julie was responsible for returning Batman to his dark roots in the 1970s after the TV show. 
Julie was responsible for Justice League of America, Flash, Green Lantern, Adam, Hawkman. Amazing, amazing legacy. And he was gruff. He was gruff. Once you got to know him, he was a marshmallow, but he was gruff. So he's walking toward me and he goes, and again, my hair's down to my shoulders, right? I got, he goes, hey, kid. I go, yes, Julie. He goes, I read your shadow script. I said, you did? He goes, yeah, it didn't stink. I go, oh my <laughs> God, thank you so much. Thank you, thank you. And he turns to me and says, how'd you like to take a shot at writing Batman? This dream I had since I was eight years old comes true. Me and one of my buddies, Bob Rosakis, who was also working at DC at the time, we wind up, we started writing Batman and Detective Comics. And that issue comes out. It's in my hands. I'm in Bloomington, frickin' Indiana. And I'm teary-eyed, to tell you the truth. And once again, here come the chills that still register. And then I panicked. I said, oh my God. This dream I had since I was eight, it's come true. I don't have a dream. I need a new dream. And it took me 10 minutes for the epiphany to hit. And it took me back to a cold night in January, 1966. The den in the basement of my parents' house in Deal Park, New Jersey. I had been waiting months for the debut of the Batman TV series. I couldn't have been more excited. You got to understand, in that era, growing up, all we had were the adventures of Superman when I was little. Sheena, Queen of the Jungle, that lasted for maybe one season. That was about it. Um, so I, anyone who had a mask, I, I, I became a fan of Zorro, the Lone Ranger, because he didn't have superheroes in TV. So couldn't wait. And then the night came. And I am watching this, and I'm simultaneously thrilled and horrified by what I'm seeing on TV. I'm thrilled it's in color. The opening animation looked very Bob Kane, Jerry Robinson art type. The sets were elaborate. The car was really cool. And then it hits me. Oh my God, they're making fun of Batman. Batman's a joke. The whole world that doesn't read these comic books like I do, the whole world is laughing at Batman. And that just killed me. Not one percentage of a thought in my mind that they were making fun of Batman and Batman was comedy. How old were you? Probably nine or 10 years old. Okay, so I was 15 and a hardcore comic book fan who had been going to conventions, writing articles for fanzines, learning about the history, meeting Bill Finger, uh, met Bob Kane, met all of these people connected to it, and I knew the whole thing. And I knew Batman was created in 1939 as a creature of the night to stalk disturbed villains in the shadows. That was the integrity. That was, that was what they had done. And that's why it was so unnerving to me. And you have to, again, go back to the context of the times. This was the only interpretation the world had of Batman. I still remember this scene. I think it was the Batman movie where the shark is coming out of the water. and The, the renowned shark and the bat shark repellent. So I felt like this was live action, but cartoonish. But you also did not suffer through the years of Batman comics when he was Bat Genie in one issue, the robot Batman in the next, the super Batman of Planet X, where his adventures were taking place on alien planets and everything that Batman represented originally from his creators was being turned into fodder 
for an eight-year-old. Julius through the hallways there, did he hate it? He said nothing. You have to go to the context of the times. He was an employee at DC Comics. He said nothing. When, when, whatever needed to, he needed to do to cooperate, he'd cooperate. At DC Comics, it was the first true merchandising bonanza that they had ever seen. It made the cover of Newsweek and uh, Life magazine, and this was big. High Society was doing the Batusi at the Peppermint Lounge in New York. This was major, major stuff that had never happened before in the world of comics, and the money was pouring into the DC Comics entity at that time. So no, you, you did not get that. But at the same regard, um, fandom was just really getting on its feet and moving. So I've got to separate out the business interests from the fanboy interests um, for the same reason that fans would not like it if that was emulated in a movie such as Batman and Robin. Not a good thing to do to go back to that 60s thing for a movie when the growing power of fandom through Comic-Cons and everything else and ultimately the internet wants a much more pure Batman. And there is one eternal question, Barry, that I get asked all the time. Which one in 80 years now, almost 80 years, which one is the true Batman? What is the true Batman? My original answer was it's the one that was created by his creators. But I've changed that. I've come to understand that the one true Batman is the one you as an individual were first exposed to. Whether it's in comic books, movies, cartoons, television, um, video games. That is your true Batman. And there's nothing wrong with that. And we live in a world today where there are so many now different versions available to you depending on demographics, on age, on location, that you can pick from. So the reruns now of the 66 series, I'm all for it because today it provides an entry point for kids who are too young to see the movies, too young to play Arkham Asylum, to become familiar with Batman and the villains and the heroes. That's great. When Warner Animation comes out with an animated movie, Batman meets Scooby-Doo, I welcome it. Because now you want to see Christopher Nolan's Batman, you can see Christopher Nolan's Batman and Tim Burton's Batman. If you want the Lego Batman and the Lego movie Batman, you can get that. If you want the cartoons for sophisticated viewers like the original Batman animated series or currently Batman Ninja or Batman Under the Red Hood, you've got that. But if you want kitty stuff, you've also got that. Hey, everybody. I know I've talked a lot on this show about AquaTrue, the countertop water purification system that's literally a miniature water cooler purifier that's on your counter. It's only about maybe 10 to 12 inches high and maybe 10 to 12 inches wide in this triangle. It's this amazingly efficient piece of equipment that sits right on your counter. It has a nice pitcher, it has a press button where the water comes out and it gives you the best tasting water you can ever imagine for pennies. 
you just put your tap water in there and it purifies it takes out all the bad chemicals everything out and gives you the best tasting water you can ever imagine that would cost you hundreds and hundreds even thousands of dollars each year from buying bottled water in the store where the plastic containers hurt the environment it's just so much easier so much better and this product is amazing i have one everyone who comes over everyone who uses it they order one and you should too i'm telling you it's incredible and if you act now you can get a hundred dollars off when you go to industrystandardwater.com and just type in the promo code barry that's b-a-r-r-y and you'll immediately get the huge discount and start enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever had industrystandardwater.com promo code Barry and you'll never ever waste another dollar buying another bottle of water for your home again so um, it is now 1979 and I have been out of law school and working in New York City for the only major movie studio based at that time in New York. It no longer is uh, around, United Artists. When I got there, they just had a huge success with One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and the year I got there was Rocky, uh, Network, followed by Annie Hall, Apocalypse Now, Black Stallion, Raging Bull, and it was there as a motion picture production attorney that I was trained and learned how you finance and produce movies. It was the greatest training in the world. It was a real family atmosphere. And I, and I said, okay, I'm going to do this for four years as if this is graduate school. I'm going to network like mad, meet everybody I can. I am going to learn everything I can. But at the end of four years, I'm going to quit. And I'm either going to be a writer, producer, or I'm going to deliver pizza for Domino's. But what I am not going to do is what I see happen to so many adults and get trapped being a lawyer for the rest of my life where I have to hang out a shingle and do somebody's will or somebody's divorce. I will not be trapped for the rest of my life like that. And luckily, I had a supportive wife who understood what my dreams were and was totally with me on it. So um, the day came. I had been at UA three and a half years. And I said, okay, now it's my time. When I was in my last days at Indiana, me and a friend wrote a movie called The Return, Return of the Batman because I found people were having difficulty grasping what a dark and serious Batman could be. They were too used to the Pow Zap Wham stuff. And so we wrote a, a movie about a Batman in his 50s, Bruce Wayne, who is Done with it, bitter, but because of terrorism finally hitting the shores of America, reluctantly has to come back out and do it all over again. And in my script, there was no Robin. It was just him and Alfred working together as a team. It was Batman devoid of a lot of the gadgets and technology where he was forced to use his brains and his detective skills uh, as well as his physical power and what he could put in his belt and the grappling hooks that went along with it. 
and uh, and we did that. So now, at this moment in time, I went back to Saul Harrison, who had mentored me into the business. Saul was now the president of DC Comics. I said, Saul, you know me. I said, in many ways, you've been like a second father to me uh, here. I want to buy the rights to Batman, and I want to show the world the true Batman, the dark and serious Batman, the way he was created by Bob and Bill back in the 30s. And he turned white, and his jaw dropped. He says, Michael, for God's sake, don't do this. He goes, I don't want to see you lose all your money. Don't you understand, young man, that when Batman went off the air on television, the brand became dead as a dodo? Those are his exact words. He says, Michael, since he went off the air on TV, nobody's interested in Batman anymore. I said, but Saul, if I do this as a dark and serious movie, nobody's ever seen a comic book superhero movie like that. It'll almost be like a new form of entertainment. And he shook his head. He goes, is there any way I can talk you out of this? And I said, no. And he gave a sigh and a shrug and shook his head. He goes, all right, schmoozle, come on in. And that began what would be a six-month negotiation. What was the money started at? At that moment in time, it was all the money in the world. I mean, it was a huge amount. I don't know how you translate it from 1979 dollars to. Today. I would imagine he started somewhere in the low six figures. You don't have to say anything. And knowing you and your Jewish heritage and improvisational skills, you got it down to five figures. But I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> I realized that a lawyer who has himself for a client is an idiot. Um, I would have agreed to anything in order to get this done. So I couldn't do it. Also, I had never mounted a production before. I'm in my 20s. I'm still in my 20s. So um, I find a guy who was the father of a good friend of mine who was a lawyer working at United Artists. His dad was a legend in the movie business, Benjamin Melnicker. Ben, who just passed away, just shy of his 105th birthday. And let me tell you, he was sharp until the final day. Um, ben ran MGM for many years in its Tiffany days. He was the executive vice president. All divisions reported to him. He was on the uh, parent company board at Lowe's. He was chairman of their film selection committee. Ben put together the deals for Dr. Zhivago, Ben-Hur, 2001 A Space Odyssey, Gigi, and all of these great musicals. Ben put together the first Canadian tax shelter deals that changed the industry. Ben helped form the Motion Picture Association of America one weekend at the White House with LBJ and the heads of the other studios. And I could go on and on about this man. Absolute legend in the business. So I went over to see him at the MGM building, pitched my heart out, and he said, all right, give me the materials. Let me study this overnight and come back on your lunch hour tomorrow. Came back, he says, Michael, you're right. This is what we've always called a pre-sold property. A property that people will know even before you spend your first advertising dollar. He goes, I'm in. I said, great. So um, Ben carried the weight on that six-month negotiation. And on October 3rd, and we raised money privately from friends, doctors, lawyers, Indian chiefs. And on October 3rd, 1979, we formed Bat Film Productions. We signed the contract, we paid the money, and our clock started ticking. So Ben was older than your father. Ben was my dad's age. And um, 
we were turned down by every single studio in Hollywood. Turned down cold. Um, didn't even have to give the script. Certain places we did when they needed to understand it. But I wasn't out to sell that script. I was out to set up a dark and serious Batman movie and use that script to illustrate to them if they weren't getting it. What you're saying is you got turned down by everybody, you owned the property, and it took you 10 years of pounding down the pavement until a movie came out. Warner had a first right of refusal because they owned DC Comics at the time. They wouldn't even let us in the door to pitch it. We got a telex from their vice president saying, we have no interest in Batman, don't even bother coming in, goodbye and good luck. And then we went through all of the major studios and all of what they called the mini majors at that time. Everybody said, I was crazy. It was the worst idea they ever heard. Michael, you're nuts. You can't make dark superheroes. Michael, you're out of your mind. You can't do serious comic book movies. Are you serious? Nobody's ever made a movie based on an old television series. That's never been done. Rejection, rejection, rejection. My two favorite rejections I must share with you over the years. One came from Columbia Pictures. Pitched my heart out to a production exec who had been there for a long time, very dapper, silver hair guy. And I always realized, oh my God, that's like, that could be me today. Um, he said to me, Michael, he says, come on. He says, Batman will never be successful as a movie because our movie, Annie, didn't do well. And I said, are you talking about that little redheaded girl who sings that song tomorrow? He goes, yeah. I go, well, what does that have to do with Batman? He goes, oh, come on, Michael. They're both out of the funny pages. That was my rejection at Columbia. At my alma mater of United Artists, there was a guy there who I, I pitched to. And um, another gruff guy, every other word out of his mouth was a curse word. Um, he said to me, Michael, you're crazy. Batman and Robin would never be successful as a movie because the movie Robin and Marion that just came out failed. Now, that was a movie in like 1979 of an aging Robin Hood and Maid Marion with Sean Connery and Audrey Hepburn. I just sat there stunned for a moment, picked up my funny books and turned around and just walked out without saying a word. I, but as I say, periodically over the next 10 years, I would go sit on top of a mountain in a lotus position and ponder what this guy said and could only conclude that because they both had the word Robin in the title, that's the only nexus, that's why they turned down the Batman movie. So finally, our clock was running really down and we had been everywhere. And Ben said, you know, Michael, there's a bright young man who I try to hire at MGM to um, be the head of production at our studio with two other guys in a troika. He goes, he didn't go the MGM route. He went over to Columbia. He now, he and his partner now, Neil Bogart, have Casablanca Records. They're the kings of disco. And I just found out that Polygram from Europe is about to give them a fund of money so they can do Casablanca movies as well. He goes, let me call Peter Goober. And he's younger and more hip than the guys you've been talking to. Maybe he'll get it. So of course, Ben was Ben. So he got Peter on the phone right away. And I went up pitching over the phone. And Peter said, I really like this. I get this. He goes, you got to come in and pitch it in person. He goes, can you be in my office tomorrow? 
I said, I'm in New York. I can be there the day after tomorrow. He says, come in day after tomorrow. So we flew out, went to pitch to Peter and um, his head of production, Barry Beckerman, and did the whole pitch. And he says, I totally get this. We will develop it. We'll do this. We'll put the money in. Let's, let's go. And at that point, Casablanca had an output deal with Universal. So the idea was it would become a Universal release. Um, and then it gets awfully convoluted from that moment on. But suffice it to say, it went through many attempts to get different directors. We started working with a great writer, Tom Mankiewicz, who was the best James... He and Richard Maybaum were the two best Bond writers. He was the Bond doctor. He also doctored the movie script for Superman 1 and 2. Went on to create Heart to Heart, part of the renowned Hollywood legendary Mankiewicz family. Um, it was a pleasure working with Tom. And, um, but it was one thing after another. It went from Universal to Filmways, from Filmways to 20th Century Fox, from 20th Century Fox. Finally, Warner Brothers came into it. And um, it was only circa 1986, seven years later, when Tim Burton came into our lives that everything began to finally click. And there is an unsung hero in this story, and that's a guy by the name of Roger Birnbaum, who's a very, very well-known, not only producer, but film executive in Hollywood. And um, Roger did so much to move this forward and make it happen. He really did. So I get the call, and they said, we want you to see this kid's work. So they set up a screening of the fine cut of Pee-wee's Big Adventure for me. And I came out of there, and I said, this is the most brilliant marriage of direction and art direction than I've ever seen. I'd love to meet this guy. So they set up three lunches for me with Tim. Turns out he was not a comic book guy. I was surprised coming out of animation and he was not a Batman guy. So I had to indoctrinate him. So I took comics out of my collection to make sure he would stay away, keep him as far away from the funny and weird stuff and only see the dark stuff that I wanted him to see. The original first year of detective comics and Batman number one the um, Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams run from the 70s, the Marshall Rogers, Steve Englehart run. And um, by the third lunch, I knew this was the guy who could make this all happen and have the vision to make it work. And uh, But let me tell you something, Barry. <clears throat> As the years click by, and it was 10 years from the time we bought the rights till that first movie did come out, it tests your mettle as a human being. You have to look deep inside yourself and go, okay, is the whole world wrong and I'm right? Or am I just being stubborn? Am I being stubborn now or do I truly believe in this? Do I truly believe in myself? And it, it kept coming back to what my mom told me in Little League and the way my brother and I were brought up by her. Once you make a commitment, you stick to it. Even if you have to walk through hell, you stick to it. And... That was kind of what it all come, boils down to. My brother was another one that, that told me about negative reinforcement. He says, Michael, you've got to take all this negative stuff and channel it, turn it around and make it positive and say, boy, I'll show them. I will prove it. I'll show them and use that to help propel you forward, which I did. I just want to take a minute to share another groundbreaking environmentally sound product with you. 
It's an unbelievable revolutionary air purifier that will change the way your home operates and it will make your life so much better. It's like no other product you'll ever find in the world. And I'm talking about the Air Doctor. As you know, air inside our homes can be up to a hundred times more polluted than the air outside. And until now, the only thing that could get rid of all these things in your house that were damaging to you and your family were systems that cost thousands and thousands of dollars. That's why I wanted to talk to you about the Air Doctor and share it with you. It removes everything, dust, pet hair, mold, pollen, flu viruses, and so many other contaminants that circulate through your home that cover your walls, floors, and furniture. You can get the Air Doctor right now. It's normally $600, and if you don't believe me, check Amazon. But for you guys, for a limited time, I can give you 50% off and save you $300 off the Amazon price. Just go to airdoctorpro.com, type in the promo code Barry, B-A-R-R-Y, and get rid of all the bad toxins in your house. That's airdoctorpro.com, promo code Barry. I have one of these. I'm telling you, it works. It really, really works. So get one now and start breathing the cleanest and healthiest air you can ever imagine. It's truly incredible. It works for me and it'll work for you. So you go to the premiere and you're seeing it for the first time in front of a live audience of a lot of people. The movie finishes, the credits come up. What are you thinking in your mind? Okay, so that's not exactly accurate. There was a screening for us when the picture was done. That was about six people. There were heavy black, um, like velour suede curtains. And as I go to go into the theater, Ben stops me. And he says to me, Michael, you're going to walk through these curtains right now. And two hours from now, you're going to come out and your life is going to be changed. He was absolutely right. Okay, so with that in mind, move to, there's two things I want to talk about. One was the premiere in Los Angeles, which was nuts. It was nuts. There, there were people lined up dressed as Batman and the Joker for, it had to be a mile uh, coming into Westwood to try to get through the crowds that had accumulated through this whole area. It was a mania. And when the movie opened up, there were lines literally around the block. There were people in college towns that were waiting, sleeping online for a day, two days, three days in order to be first ones in to see the movie. There were no cell phones. People were getting pizzas delivered to them online. People were there with guitars. And I mean, it was amazing what was going on. It was having a cultural impact. But how did you feel when you saw the film for the first time in front of that big audience? So how do you feel when you've had a dream since you were a kid and it comes true before your eyes? And amid the same type of thunderous standing ovation type of applause that I can remember getting from that student variety show in May of 1969, it was... It was absolutely astounding, but at the same regard, I never expected anything different. 
How crazy that sounds. I always knew it was going to be a huge success, that we were tapping into something that was going to be a huge success if it was done the right way. And Tim Burton deserves all the accolades because he had that vision and knew how to execute that vision. There's another genius. There were two geniuses involved here that you cannot in any way um, leave them off center stage here. And that is my dear friend Anton First, who's not with us any longer. Anton, his vision, what he brought to life, his design work, he designed Gotham City, designed the Batmobile, the whole look of the picture. What those two guys did, and I might even also throw in Danny Elfman's musical score, to me, every damn week to this day, you can see their influence on every genre movie that comes out. That movie was revolutionary. And you look at the huge success of the Marvel movies right now and everything else, it all goes back to that movie in 1989. It really does. And, um, and that's incredible. That July, the Berlin Wall was coming down. I was up all night watching CNN as people were pouring into freedom for the first time. And then at 1.30 in the morning through the wall comes a 10-year-old boy wearing a Batman hat. Like, oh my God. Times Square, the giant billboard, billboards all around. It was the only movie ever marketed where the name of the movie was not on the initial posters and billboards. All it had was the gold oval with the black bat and the June 23rd. But everyone knew what it was. It was the summer of Batman. You couldn't walk, honest to God, you couldn't walk 20 steps through Times Square without seeing someone in a Batman hat or a Batman t-shirt. They were breaking into the bus station things and shattering the glass to get the posters. People were calling movie theaters to find out where the trailer was playing. They would pay money, go in and watch the trailer, and then leave before the feature. There was something cultural going on. And in telling the story, that is just as, if not more important, than the box office results. Six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention some names okay. or some things. I want you to tell me what comes to mind. Could be one word, could be a sentence or a couple of sentences. Jack Nicholson. Gave us all the credibility in the world and gave an honest, true portrayal of who the Joker was as of 1988 when that movie was being shot. In the comic books, we were all living in a black and white world of good versus evil, and the Joker was the clown prince of crime, and he brought that to life. Stan Lee. My mentor, my friend, my idol. Um, God bless him. What he, The way he impacted my life and the lives of so many generations of people around the world is unforgettable. Um, he has carved out our modern-day mythology. Samuel L. Jackson. Fabulous, fabulous actor. Uh, very, very cool guy. DC versus Marvel. There should not be a DC versus Marvel. We should be all in this together. Again, as I said, I collected everything. I loved everything from all the different companies. There's Unless it's for publicity and to light some fires, I get that. Otherwise, if you look at it retrospectively over the decades, almost everybody who ever worked for DC also worked for Marvel and vice versa. They drifted back and forth. Wes Craven. 
one of the truly great human beings, smart as could be, an English professor who wound up making some of the most craven horror movies ever and one of the nicest people you could ever, ever hope to meet. Um, I miss him dearly. The failure of Batman and Robin. Deservedly so. R.I.P. Good night to you. And part of the lesson, a three-pronged lesson that studios must understand as they become international conglomerates more than movie studios. Once you start making decisions based on toys and merchandising and Happy Meals, instead of on great stories and great characters, the tail is starting to wag the dog. It's not about how much shit you can blow up. It's not about what the latest special effects are. The whole key, there are 10 rules to making a successful movie. Number one, story. Number two, story. Number three, story. Number four, story. Number five, story. Number six, character. Number seven, character. Number eight, character. Number nine, story. Number 10, story. Why bother going to history and mythology if you're going to create something out of whole new cloth? Then just call it something different. Michael Keaton. Fantastic. He was such a key to this whole thing being successful because it was Tim Burton's vision. Tim Burton said, unless audiences can believe the actor, he goes, Michael, this is not about Batman. If we're going to do this revolutionary movie, it's got to all be about Bruce Wayne. And if the audiences don't believe in Bruce Wayne, don't believe when he's putting on the bat suit, if they unintentionally laugh, we're screwed. We've lost everything. With Michael Keaton, he said, I can create a portrayal of a Bruce Wayne so driven, so obsessed to the point of being psychotic that audiences who have never seen a dark and serious comic book superhero movie before will say, oh yeah, that guy would do that. Scarlett Johansson. Wonderful lady, wonderful family, great actress. Keanu Reeves. Super, super cool. I thought that he did a masterful job in bringing Constantine to life in that movie. The Marvel Cinematic Universe. A great thing. There can be a successful Marvel super cinematic universe because it was co-created, and I'm careful to say co-created, by this man who not only was the sole credited writer, but was also the sole editor and had the sole voice. So when you have one person co-creating all these characters and their settings, you are getting one tone. You are getting a tone that appeals to a certain audience across the board that's consistent. You are creating a world, you are doing world building of rules that are consistent. Everybody in the Marvel Universe knows what's in Times Square, knows what's in outer space, knows what's under the ocean, knows the future and how it all works. It is a unified universe because it came from that specific vision does that also hold true for the dc extended universe the dc universe if you look historically comes about because dc was set up completely differently you had eight different editors who had fiefdoms they built castles with moats around it drawbridges and crocodiles in the moats and they were very protective of the characters they had 
They had their own stable of writers, their own stable of artists, and all other editors you keep away from my characters, with the exception of the crossover early on between Batman and Superman. So, let me take you back to 1961. I go to one Amasa Pharmacy, I can buy two comic books this day. I buy an issue of Superman and I buy an issue of Aquaman. I take them home. In the issue of Superman I'm reading, he goes to Atlantis under the ocean. It's a domed city. He falls in love with a mermaid because everyone there are mermaids or mermen. Wow, cool story. Then I read Aquaman that week. Same week, same DC Comics. Here, Aquaman's the king of Atlantis. There's no dome on Atlantis. There are no mermen or mermaids down there. It's like WTF, you know? And you just accepted it. The Aquaman comic books were at that moment maybe being written for 15-year-olds while Superman might have still been written for 8 to 12-year-olds. Completely different tones. And even though it was the same company, nobody cared about consistency or rules. So it's very hard now to imagine a scene in a movie with a Christopher Nolan Batman standing next to a green guy from Mars talking to a guy who talks to fish with a two-inch tall guy sitting in a floating easy chair over his shoulder. So maybe what's best for everyone might be concentrating on a Gotham City universe, a Metropolis universe, a Paradise Island universe. They're completely different in terms of the very nature in which they were conceived and set up. Christopher Nolan. A genius and a wonderful, nice guy with a wonderful, nice family. A genius. Deserves every accolade, not only for what he accomplished specifically within the Dark Knight trilogy, which to me will always be one movie in three acts, but for the fact that this man raised the bar for all superhero movies because when you walk out of a Christopher Nolan Batman movie you no longer have to say that was a great comic book movie you can say that was a great film Heath Ledger performance of a lifetime and a sweet dear man uh two things to mention in point the the characterization that was created there between Heath and Chris Nolan, in terms of bringing back the Joker into the world in a movie that wanted to be taken seriously, that wanted to have audiences believe that this could all be happening today, that this could be real, that Gotham City could be real, that Bruce Wayne could be a real young man with post-traumatic stress syndrome from what he experienced as a kid on a lost horizon journey of self-discovery, that he can be real today, that he could put on an armored suit and be this person today, that all this crazy technology could be real, that the Joker could be real. Creating a portrayal of a Joker, now no longer in that Jack Nicholson 1988 world. Now we're not talking black and white, good and evil. We're talking about a gray world of order versus chaos in which the Joker in the comics is a homicidal maniac. So to create a portrayal of a Joker as a modern-day terrorist who places no value on human life whatsoever, not man, woman, or child, or his own, that's terrifying. Audiences were literally scared by that version of the Joker. So we were on the set one day in Chicago. It was a hot 
humid, humid day. 1,200 extras. It was uh, a funeral sequence with horses and, and everything. And Heath comes out. He's dressed in his Joker makeup, the Joker coat. Then they put a heavy policeman's overcoat over him and a hat. And there's going to be an attempted assassination of the mayor, I believe. And it's take one, and there's a lot of running back and forth, a lot of action. Take two, take four, take six. And finally, there's a break in the action, and Heath comes off to the side. And when they get this coat and hat off of him, it's like somebody had taken an entire garbage can filled with water and just poured it over his head. He's just soaked through. And as they take off the Joker jacket, I, of course, say to him, uh, Heath, um, my wife Nancy is on the set today. You've never met her. I wonder if I could just introduce you to her. He says, sure. And the two of them wind up talking. Heath concentrates on her like there's nobody else in Chicago and for 20 minutes wants to know all about all of this nonprofit work she's doing and um, what she's doing in Rwanda. And, and I mean, just a great person. Your proudest moment in show business. In show business. Having two children enter the business, find success in the business without ever losing their integrity, honor, or sense of humor. In doing that, they live up to the standards that I was taught from my parents and grandparents that we all tried to impart to them, that it's family first, always family first over business, and there's a certain way you conduct yourself. Because as my partner Ben once said to me, the only thing you get to take with you when you die and get to leave behind is your good name. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level. Batman and Robin, Catwoman, that whole era. Um, I thought the pillars of the temple were falling down on my head. And Ben pulled me aside and said, Michael... If what you have been telling them is true, then they are going to get bitten on the butt by this. He said, if they get bitten on the butt, they're going to have to do it your way the next time. So I think my greatest disappointment in which I was unconsolable in retrospect was worth it in order to get Batman to the Christopher Nolan Dark Knight trilogy. Last question, what advice do you have for the young person who's putting their change together to figure out how they can survive the next day and traveling places because their parents have to take them there and having a vision and a dollar at best and a dream and how to get to the levels that you've gotten and have the kind of career that you've had? I have uh, been fortunate enough to have spoken at about 250 colleges. I've spoken to and met with lots of kids, and every year I go back and I teach two intensive seminars for three weeks. So I stay in touch with kids, and it's internationally as well as nationally. <clears throat> and I've learned a few things. Number one, you've got to be passionate about what you're doing. You've got to follow your passion in life. And you have plenty of time as you're growing up to discover it. 
And early on, as you're in high school and college, it's just as important to learn what you don't like as well as to learn what you do like. Then you got to get up off the damn couch. There is a pervasive, worldwide, generational sense of entitlement of an awful lot of young people who believe the world owes them something or the world's going to come to them. My experience has been 85% of the last two, the youngest two generations believe that. So if you are willing to get up off the damn couch and be proactive and follow your passion and make something happen, your competition in life is not 100%, it's 15%. And your chance of success just shot through the roof. But it requires sacrifice. Will it happen quick? No. Um, will it be easy? No. It's a siege. It's a siege. You got to dig a foxhole. And one of the most important decisions you will ever have to make is who you allow in the foxhole with you to watch your back. But that's kind of the approach to it. You know, I'll, I'll end this part of it by going back to my father. My father was a mason. My father loved what he did. He was an old world artist. He was a real craftsman. And the fireplaces and homes that he built out of brick and marble and stone uh, are amazing. And they will stand for generations. But my dad had to drop out of high school at age 16 to go to work and help his family survive the Depression. He worked six days a week until he was 80 and was still climbing on roofs doing his thing. He would still have been doing it if my mom hadn't gotten sick and he stopped just to take care of my mom. I'm growing up, my brother Paul growing up in this house and six mornings a week before dawn, my dad gets out of bed every day with a smile on his face, couldn't wait to get to work. Even in New Jersey humidity or snow, he just kept going. And when you live in a house and see that every day, how can you not want that for yourself? How can you not want to wake up on a rainy Monday morning and say, boy, I can't wait to get to work? So in high school, my brother and I started working for my dad in summers. And it was terrible. It was awful. It was the worst work in the world. In that heat, tarring a foundation, carrying heavy cement bags and bricks. Man, the epiphany was, okay, I have to find my own bricks and stones. And my bricks and stones were comic books and Batman and movies and cartoons. And I had to follow that. I had to follow that passion. And man, there were plenty of times I did not know where my next dollar was going to come from. I did not know how I was going to pay next week's bills and never mind next month's bills as we waited and tightened our belts over those 10 years for Batman to happen. But you keep working harder and working to find a way and letting your passion propel you and sometimes you just need a guardian angel i had one along the way um and he was he was amazing he helped me get to batman so um i think it's i think it's passion and it's persistence you've got to have a high threshold for frustration it's the only way you could succeed and believe in yourself because I learned that I learned how you act when everyone tells you you suck and your ideas are terrible and your work is bad. 
And then I learned that you also, you don't believe that, but you also don't believe them when they start calling you and saying, oh, your work is great. You are wonderful and blah, blah, blah. You just believe in yourself, believe in your work and everything will be okay. An associate who I respect dearly, who I started working with here in Hollywood, he used to say this all the time when I'd say, how could that person be like that? How come that person isn't a nice person? He would always say this to me, Barry, decent people shouldn't live here. <laughs> and thank God, after meeting you, I realized that decent people do live here. And I'm so grateful that you took the time to be with me. Oh, thanks, thank you Barry. so much. This was great. You know, it's it's a rarity to have an interview with somebody who really knows his shit and really knows about comic books and knows about movies and Batman and and that it, this stuff is important to him so that we can have a very frank and honest uh, conversation about it all. So I, I really appreciate that. I'm honored and proud that you did this. Thank you so much. Thanks, pal. Okay, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who sent me a message, and one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, landing on True Lie, L-Y-E, June 23rd, 2018. The heading reads, Dope Show, four stars. And the comment reads, I reached out to Barry Katz as a long shot, Hail Mary. He actually responded and said a lot of my questions would be answered on his podcast. I thought there was a chance it was just self-promotion. I was wrong. I love this podcast. I love the behind-the-scenes industry stories that someone like me has not been privy to. Because I enjoy it so much, I'm hoping that I'm learning subconsciously and this stuff will kick in as I need it in my own career. Definitely recommend it if you're interested in the biz and are a lover of biographical info on power players in the industry. Wow. Thank you so much, True Lie. You are a winner. And that wraps up part two of our podcast. I just want to thank my incredible partners, starting with Wondery. Check out their lineup of some of the greatest podcasts in the world at Wondery.com. And AquaTrue, the revolutionary miniaturized countertop water purification system that works straight out of the box. Plug it in, fill it with tap water, and immediately it'll turn your faucet into your favorite bottled water for pennies. Get $100 off when you go to industrystandard.com and type in the promo code Barry. Start enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever had. And you'll save tons of money a year like I have and never buy another bottle of water again. Also, amazing documentary called I Killed JFK centering on the only living person in history who ever admitted to killing John F. Kennedy. 
Go to ikilljfk.com, buy the film, and you also get the rare interviews with five of the last living JFK assassination experts, and I guarantee you it'll change the way you think of the world. The Air Doctor, the groundbreaking portable air purification system, which will change your home environment and overall life for the better. The Air Doctor instantly removes dust, pet hair, mold, pollen, flu viruses, and other contaminants circulating through your home. Normally $600, and if you don't believe me, check Amazon right now. But for you guys, for a limited time, I can offer you 50% off. That's a $300 savings. I got one of these systems, and I'm telling you, it's truly incredible. Just go to airdoctorpro.com, type in the promo code Barry, and get rid of all the bad toxins in your house and start breathing the cleanest and healthiest air in the world. And finally, Boku Superfood, the purest, most potent, and delicious superfood blends on the planet. Certified organic, kosher, and vegan, Boku Superfood is changing the game for thousands of people in 65 countries. And I'm so confident it'll change your life that I worked out an incredible deal with the company. Get a full week's worth of Boku Superfood for free. Just pay the minimal shipping. Go to tryboku.com and experience the difference of how it makes you look and feel. And you will understand why Boku is the number one family-owned superfood company in the world. Thank you so much for listening and have a great day. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money. Drop that fancy car. All the people love you. You're going for. Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, Please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.